Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host, the Executive Director of the Connecticut Certification Board. Um, I'd like to start by talking about a new sponsor we have. Um, it's a small coffee community here in my town of Bristol, Connecticut, called Cafe Real, and he's a provider of sustainably grown coffee, which is sourced directly from family farms in Medellin, Colombia, and roasted on site here in Bristol. Uh, without hesitation, I can say this is the best coffee that I have ever had, and my friends can attest to my fondness for all the products. I've sent it out to so many of my friends, um, but I do want to say that it's it's not simply a coffee shop or a product. It really is a true coffee community. Um, you can see their coffees and order yours at caferial.co. Order for uh, yourself or for the coffee aficionado in your life and experience coffee like no other. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the Connecticut Certification Board, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. According to an article posted on the National Public Radio website on November 8th, Martin Njoku, a small pharmacy owner in Fayette County, West Virginia, began dispensing buprenorphine in 2016 to locals and those in nearby counties, counties where Floody had displaced many of their residents. The place he had called home for over 30 years was being decimated by opioid use dependence, with families and communities being torn apart, and his pharmacy was doing what he called righteous for people who have the illness. Sadly, a few years later, the DEA raided his pharmacy, accusing it of contributing to the opioid epidemic rather than fighting to curb it. The federal agency revoked his pharmacy's license to dispense controlled substances, claiming that they posed an imminent danger to public health or safety. Even though two judges later separately ruled in Njoku's favor against the DEA, his business was shattered. Our guest today, who authored the article, will fill in the details of Mr. Njoku's case, uh, which is not as unusual as you would like to think, as well as the bigger picture of the harms of the DEA's blanket enforcement of their policies without proper investigation. Neri Patani is a national correspondent at Kaiser Health News, where she writes about mental health, substance use, and other public health topics. She has previously written for the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Spotlight PA, and other outlets. She has been heard on the radio at WNYC in New York and on National Public Radio. She was a 2019 recipient of the Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health, awarded by the Carter Center in Atlanta. She's a graduate of Northeastern University in Boston and is currently pursuing a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins, securing one of 50 Bloomberg fellowships. She's originally from Connecticut, just a couple towns over from me, and we are proud to welcome this locally rooted journalist to the program. I also want to reintroduce the former podcast guest who will join me today uh, as our first ever co-host, Kapil Nair. Kapil has been a force for patient advocacy, social justice, citing research and information to hold corrupt and fraudulent treatment facilities accountable. Given his interest and knowledge in this topic, I wanted to invite him to participate. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thanks for you. having us. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Um, Go ahead. So to begin, what prompted your investigation in the development of this piece? So I often report on substance use issues, which means I'm constantly talking to patients, researchers, people working in the field about what they see. And I, you know, a while back had talked to some researchers and harm reduction workers in Western North Carolina um, about the difficulty of finding buprenorphine in pharmacies. Um, basically, they were telling me, you know, a lot of pharmacies don't carry it. And people in recovery were telling me, even if I can get a doctor to prescribe, you know, Subutex or Suboxone, I'm having a hard time finding a place to fill that prescription. 
So I kind of had that in the back of my mind. And then more recently, I got a call from a lawyer who represents pharmacies um, that he was seeing more cases of the DEA scrutinizing Subutex and that his pharmacy clients were worried about this. Um, So then I started looking into the issue a little bit more. And that's when I came across the case in West Virginia, where Martin Njoku's uh, DEA registration was stripped based on a case entirely about buprenorphine or Subutex concerns. And that really led me to realize this is worth diving into and and there's more to look at here. For our our readers that, I mean, our listeners who haven't seen the article as of yet um, or or haven't had a chance to read it, can you talk a little bit about the specifics of Mr. Njoku's case um, and fill in some of the details? Yeah, so Martin Njoku worked as a pharmacist in southwestern West Virginia for over 20 years. And he told me he'd always dreamed of owning his own pharmacy, Um, But he kind of wanted to make sure his daughters were settled in college before he took the risk of starting his own business. Um, But once they left home, he decided to start Oak Hill Hometown Pharmacy. And in 2016, he started dispensing buprenorphine. Um, He was giving up both Subutex and Suboxone, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners already know. But Subutex is um, the older medication. It's just buprenorphine. And Suboxone is the Um, newer formulation that contains buprenorphine along with naloxone, and that's supposed to make it more difficult to misuse. Um, But, and over over time, you know, Suboxone has become the standard of care, but initially it was much more expensive than Subutex. Mm -hmm. So Martin at his pharmacy was filling a high number of Subutex prescriptions, um, and the DEA thought that was concerning. They also said, you know, he was filling prescriptions for patients who drove from West Virginia to doctors in Pennsylvania to get their prescription and then back to West Virginia to Martin's pharmacy. Um, They were paying in cash for the medication. And so the DEA raided uh, Martin's pharmacy and took his registration, which meant that his pharmacy couldn't dispense buprenorphine, but also couldn't dispense any other controlled substances. So insurers started pulling their contracts from him. Distributors wouldn't work with him and became a legal case where Martin and his lawyers essentially explained that people were getting the Subutex because it's cheaper and it's what they could afford. And that they were driving to Pennsylvania for prescriptions because there was a serious lack of doctors in West Virginia who would prescribe those medications. And then they had to pay cash because Medicaid in West Virginia wouldn't cover a prescription written by an out-of-network doctor. So essentially all the concerning factors that the DEA was looking at could also be explained by the fact that addiction treatment is really hard to access. Um, But as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, even though the judges uh, looked at that information and ruled in Martin's favor, his business was already in trouble by then. And and he ended up having to close it in April of this year. You know, I think it makes sense that uh, for the DEA to to have red flags, point them out. But it doesn't mean I think the blanket enforcement without investigation is really where the problem comes in. And, and, And I think that leads into our next question a little bit. Absolutely. And an assistant of the U.S. attorney kind of explained that the DEA, quote, got slapped hard for being asleep at the switch uh, as the opioid crisis ramped up uh, and further continued to say that they're trying to make sure that Subutex doesn't become the next big problem, uh, end quote. Uh, But according to the court transcripts, and that was all indicative of what you wrote in this article. But do you feel like this is just another, you know, a case of too little, too late? it's necessarily too little too late, but rather from talking to folks, it seems like an incorrect area of focus. 
So, you know, in, in talking with um, researchers, people who work in treatment, people who work with um, people who are, you know, living on the street or using drugs, they said, yes, you know, Subutex is sold on the street. And yes, some people use it as a primary drug of choice. But by and large, research shows that most people are using it on the street to avoid using heroin. So essentially, they're self-medicating. And from a harm reduction perspective, right, a lot of folks are telling me it's safer to use buprenorphine because it has a ceiling effect. So at a certain point, the effects taper off and your risk of overdosing on buprenorphine alone is incredibly low compared to heroin or even prescription opioid pills where that risk is a lot higher. So I think then the question that people are posing to me, right, is are we cracking down on subutex and, you know, eliminating some problem that, you know, is very slim that people are going to, you know, overdose or, or be harmed by this? Or are we really limiting people's access to subutex that they need for treatment? And so I think it's not necessarily too little, too late, but more too much on the wrong drug at the wrong time from what people were telling me. And a lack of information or lack of accurate information for them uh, seems to have contributed to that as well. You know, we t- there's always diversion of medications. If you talk to anybody, somebody may say, hey, I, you know, I still have a couple of oxys from my uh, dental work that I kept in the closet just in case someone needs it. You know, I'm not advocating for that, but it's not uncommon. And when you had mentioned about individuals that were using, so many were using what they couldn't get legally to to kind of uh, prevent the heroin use. We saw the same thing in, in OTPs with methadone. When it was being diverted, a good amount of that diversion was going to family members or friends. I would take half of my dose and give it to somebody else who didn't have access. So I think that the DEA is completely missing that access point. Um, as we look at Njoku's case again, it's in the court document said that there were red flags. And I mentioned earlier, red flags, I like the fact that they see red flags. It means they keep their eyes open. But, and it suggested that the agencies, uh, the pharmacies' actions were irresponsible. But, you know, many of the prescriptions were for Subutex, which you addressed. And then the travel out of state to get prescriptions, they drove long distances within West Virginia to get to his pharmacy and paid in cash. One can understand how it fits the model of a pill mill prescriber, but is there any record of a full engage, investigation of these red flags, or does this, as I, I think, seem like a knee-jerk reaction to what they saw? I think that's a really key question and key point. So the DEA, um, I'll say, did not re- respond to specific questions I'd asked them in reporting this article. So what I'm working off of are the court records, the transcripts from the um, cases they presented in court. From that, they did not document any specific instances of misuse, actually. Their, their case, like you said, points to these red flags that you know, can be really concerning about patients you know, buying subutex only, paying in cash, having out-of-state prescriptions, but they don't actually include records in the case of someone buying the buprenorphine at the pharmacy and then selling it or somehow misusing it. They don't actually have that specific example. And that's something the judge pointed out and asked about. So essentially their case is based solely on the red flags and the primary red flag being that the prescriptions were subutex instead of suboxone. Um, And I think that's what scares a lot of the pharmacists and people in the addiction field that I spoke with, that if it's not actual misuse, but just the fact that you're filling subutex prescriptions that the DEA goes after, then why would anyone be willing to fill these prescriptions? 
then you know, a lot of people are disincentivized to do so and you would t- essentially make it harder for people who want and need these medications to get treatment. Do you feel it's irresponsible uh, on behalf of the DEA to just take the red flags and act on them without investigation? So I want to avoid kind of oversimplifying this and that, you know, saying the, the DEA is, is a villain here. I think, you know, they do have an important job to do in terms of uh, avoiding diversion. Um, and we saw when they don't do that um, effectively with opioids, what, what kind of fallout we can have. But I think the key issue here is we need to not look at these decisions in silos, right? Like, oh, some subutex is diverted, therefore it's bad, and we need to crack down on it immediately. It's a more complex issue that you need to be looking at. Well, why is it being diverted? How much is being diverted? What happens when it's diverted, right? Are people using it for treatment? Are people dying? And if we crack down on it, does it just stop the bad aspects or does it stop the good aspects too and make it so that people who want treatment and want to use it properly aren't able to do that? Um, so I think it's just, it's not to say, you know, anyone, you know, the pharmacist who doesn't want to st- stock Suboxone is wrong or the DEA agent who's trying to avoid diversion is wrong. It's just a matter of there are a lot of moving pieces. And I think throughout our healthcare system, we have a tendency to look at things just from our own lens. And, and this one decision will have one impact. And that's just not true. Yeah. And in speaking with our healthcare system, I mean, that kind of leads us into our next question. In many regions of our country, there's tremendous difficulty in getting substance use disorder treatment, which is often sometimes more challenging than obtaining illicit drugs, for example. Um, And this has been a longstanding systemic issue, which I think you've spoken to earlier as well. Uh, Even when treatment is available, there's no necessarily guarantee of the quality of treatment due to the lack of real outcome study. Um, Do you care to detail about this a little bit more? Yes, I would love to. Um, So I think think you both know this. I love um, talking about this, but finding treatment at all. And then finding quality treatment are both huge hurdles, right? So if we start with just finding treatment to begin with, rural areas, it can be particularly hard. That was, you know, some of the stuff that was happening with this West Virginia case where people were saying, I can't find a a doctor who will treat addiction in my state or one who doesn't have a waiting list that's three years long. So I'm going to drive, you know, X miles to Pennsylvania instead. Um, There's also cost that patients tell me all the time is a huge issue, right? Even if they have insurance, insurance might only cost treatment, uh, cover treatment a certain number of times or attempts, whereas addiction is a chronic disease and people are going to need to you know, go back and try different treatments multiple times. And then if you're in a state like where I am now, North Carolina, where um, they have not expanded Medicaid, a lot of people don't have insurance to begin with. And, and so they're paying out of pocket for this. Um, and then it's the whole second level when we're going to talk about quality treatment, right? Some providers will do things like um, buprenorphine or methadone um, medications that research shows help treat opioid use disorder, and other places are going to be abstinence-only models. Some places will provide counseling and therapy to try to get at other issues that are affecting people's substance use, and, and others won't. And quite frankly, it's really hard to assess. There's no federal vetting system, there's no database, and there's not much at the state level either. Um, so, you know, Kath, you and I have discussed this, both having um, spent time in Pennsylvania, that I worked on an investigation there about the lack of state oversight on these facilities and how, you know, some treatment centers were even billing for counseling sessions that they never 
gave to patients or that patients and counselors said, you know, we never did these, but we were just billing it and the state didn't take action against them. So there's really little accountability and it can be really frustrating for families and individuals about how difficult it is to find a good rehab. Interestingly, I did a podcast a few months ago with Dr. Mark Willenbring, who used to work for NIAAA. And what he has publicly said is that the treatment the system should be blown up or run over with a bulldozer and started. And coupling that with another colleague of mine, Dr. Bob Lynn, up in the Portland, Oregon area, who talks about outcomes all the time and the outcomes don't exist providers will talk about how great they are and that they used evidence-based practices, but they don't provide outcomes or outcomes that matter. You can't count visits and things like that. And that's a whole other ball of wax that, that I've kind of addressed on this podcast, but it, I think it goes on and on and on, um, whether it's, yeah, and, go ahead, I'm sorry. And I was just going to say, and, and if they do report outcomes, right, I've had a lot of treatment centers say to me like, oh, well, you know, we've talked to X number of patients who are still doing well after treatment, um, after leaving our facility, but there's no denominator to that number. So you have no idea how many people didn't do well or how many they couldn't track. You just kind of get this, you know, anecdotal, well, you know, John says he's doing really well after this. Do you think that this kind of plays into, when you mentioned um, different types of providers, the, the actions here kind of play into the, an anti-medication bias that does exist in the field. And I don't think that the DEA meant to do that, but I think that could be one of those, those unintended outcomes um, kind of feeding yeah. into things. Yeah, I certainly think that can be part of the fallout, right? Because um, I was speaking with uh, the former, one of the former members of the board of pharmacy in West Virginia, who is familiar with Martin's case. And he was basically saying, you know, when this type of thing happens, pharmacists who already are not necessarily inclined to stop medications for opioid disorder really don't want to take the chance now, right? Like, why would you yeah. potentially risk a DEA investigation when, like, it, it doesn't get you that much in return? And, you know, doctors kind of see and feel the same way, right? A lot of doctors already don't want to treat patients with addiction. And then they see, oh, am I, am I going to be at risk of a DEA investigation? Then maybe, like, I shouldn't bother anyway. Um, so I think these these biases, as you said, already are out there. Um, and then when you have cases like this, unfortunately, it does it has that compounding effect. Mm. Uh, you know, you had mentioned this: the pharmacists that that are prescribing, or, or I'm excuse me, that are dispensing buprenorphine, um, they worry that just simply doing that will or ordering more to meet their the the market, meet the need. Uh, they're concerned that that's going to trigger an investigation. Um, interestingly, the DEA itself doesn't specify thresholds for controlled substances, but it, it requires wholesalers to flag suspicious orders. In turn, the wholesalers limit how much a pharmacy can buy or, or create algorithms to detect orders that exceed projected need. Just in a bigger picture, do you feel that this is an appropriate way to deal with things for the current epidemic? So. I think it's hard to say because this process is pretty opaque, right? The DEA is not saying we set X threshold for buprenorphine and each pharmacy can only order this amount. They're telling wholesalers, if we see something suspicious, like you know, flag it for us. So what wholesalers do is they create these algorithms, which again are typically proprietary. And so I don't know exactly what goes into them and neither do the pharmacists. 
So I spoke with um, a former DEA attorney and someone who works with some of the wholesalers. And he said, you know, generally the parameters that these companies use to set this you know, threshold is the population in the area that a pharmacy is located, the history of how much different substances these pharmacies order, how much they're ordering for controlled substances versus non-controlled substances. Um, but then they also factor in things like, what is the DEA scrutinizing? So if the DEA is scrutinizing opioids, let's say, for example, then the wholesalers might tighten that algorithm to set a lower threshold for pharmacies um, ordering opioids because they want to be able to flag it and tell DEA, like, we're doing our job. We flagged this. Go ahead. Look at it. Um, they don't. The wholesalers don't want to be subject to lawsuits like they have been. And so if they see, like in this article, DEA is scrutinizing buprenorphine, they might tighten those algorithms to set a lower threshold for buprenorphine. But again, no one other than the wholesalers knows um, what the threshold is and, and how to operate within it. So you have this sort of chilling effect. Um, and I think that can lead to a lot of unintended consequences. It's when we talked about those environmental factors that we don't know uh, because it's proprietary, what there's assessed. I wonder if we're in, one of the things that just ran through my mind is the marketing of specific medications. I'd like to see what some of the data is when a specific medication is marketed nationally, what we see of, of an increase. We know it occurs. I just, and I'm, there may be data I have just, I'm not aware of, um, but I'm curious how much that plays into the their algorithm. And we don't know. Um, it, it's just really fascinating to, to think about. And we know it's a lot of CYA stuff. Everybody's looking to cover their own backside uh, because of problems. And Anir, in the article that you wrote, you interviewed a patient who said that they've been in 10 rehabs and millions of detoxes, and the only thing that has worked for them was this one sublingual tablet, which ended up saving their lives. And I feel like working in the field, a number of folks would attest to this exact same phenomena. So we wanted to ask, like, why do you think it is that the folks that this impacts most simply aren't listened to? Yeah, I I mean, I don't think this will surprise you or, or even a lot of your listeners, right? But the people who use and see the benefits of buprenorphine are people who have used drugs and who have a substance use disorder. So there's lots of stigma against them. People may not trust their stories. And it's generally easy, whether they intend to or not, for DEA or other agencies and companies to basically discredit these folks or just talk over them, talk louder than them. And I think, you know, you as, as a provider, someone um, working with patients, you see this. I think the harm is that these are the folks who can tell you how hard it is to access this treatment and what consequences we could face like society-wide if we make that process harder. Um, but as you said, too often we're not, we're not asking them, we're not listening to them. If they share, we're not trusting them. Um, and so then that, that part of it, the part of realizing have we made addiction treatment harder than accessing the illegal drugs? That gets missed. We know that that um, on a large scale with funding, I think stories may motivate, may may uh, a personal story may strike home with somebody who's in a decision-making position, but that doesn't drive that. Uh, it's data, and they don't consider that practice-based evidence um, from, from clients talking about their stories. I, I don't think they consider that as legit data when, um, I, I think it, it's pretty important that that's what we're, that becomes part of the equation again. 
Just as we move forward, is there anything else uh, that you'd like to share with the audience? Other than read the article and follow you on <laughs> your writing. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for, for throwing in that pitch for me. Um, but no, I think uh, kind of what I said before to just hammer home, this is a complicated issue. And it's not to say that any one actor is is fueling all the consequences, but it's more that pharmacists can't just look at it from what they dispense. DEA can't just look at it from what is being diverted. Doctors can't just look at it from what they're prescribing. Like this really needs a more, a wider lens to see when one person takes an action, what are the consequences? Especially when we're talking about, you know, overdose deaths surging right now. Um, the problem's getting worse, not better. And so we really need to be making those treatments as accessible as possible to as many people who want and need them. It's just kind of thinking out loud. I, I wonder if there's a way that the larger system with all of the moving parts and all the moving, you know, a way that we could kind of follow what each arm of the octopus is doing. Um, I know that's nearly impossible, but I just think that how much it would be helpful um, so that we can see what these effects are that were the domino effect isn't just a straight line. Right. It, it goes all different directions. Uh, and I, I wish there was a way that we could track that or look at that. It's, it's just a lot of information. Yeah, I will uh, put my little plug in here as a uh, public health student that I think that's kind of the, the point of public health. Right. To yep. step back and not just look at the care for an individual patient, but look at how these systems interact and, and look at it at a macro level. That being said, I'm a student and still learning how to do this. So I won't I won't opine in that area. But I think <laughs> that is an, uh, a field where you could turn to to say to people, you know, how do we look at this holistically? I think uh, uh, Dr. Leanna Wen's um, book that she just released a few months ago paints a fantastic picture of the systems, a systems approach um, and how things play off each other. I, when I read that, I was just kind of blown away. I've heard her speak several times, but I was blown away um, uh, by how she explained it in the book. Cap, anything else to add? No, I was just going to piggyback off that last point. And what you said kind of reminded me of epigenetics and how when something happens with a specific population, it can sort of imprint later on in life. And I'm thinking about Dopesick and Patrick Redding Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, and how the opioid epidemic kind of took off. And now the DEA is coming in for harm reduction and, and you know, sub, subutex and suboxin and all these things. But it's interesting how there's no macro level kind of analysis of, okay, if Dopesick and Patrick Redding Keefe and Purdue Pharma kind of isolated, you know, specific portions of Virginia it would almost make sense that it would be overabundance of prescribing of suboxone and subutex in that specific area as well. So why would the DEA then red flag that immediately? But not to go down a conspiracy theory idea or anything like that, but just thinking out loud, you know, this article made me think about a lot of different things and we're kind of all living this intersection of public health crisis with societal implications, with also big pharma and it's coming to light now. Um, so I just want to commend Aniri for doing this article, coming forth with this article, because I think it's invaluable for all of us to look at it, study it, and try and digest it in a way that we all could collaboratively see the importance of this type of medication and its application. You know, I agree. I, I jump right on that and agree that I think it was a, a, a tremendous piece. And what it did for me is, as I looked at it from a perspective is, 
many of my listeners, we work in areas and they hear where the access is not nearly as limited as it is in many rural areas. So it's a picture that we may not have seen. And so oftentimes out of sight, out of mind, when you don't know that it's out there, it's important to get that message. And, and I firmly believe that any of us that work in this industry, and I, and I say industry rather than field, that we, we have a responsibility to try to make it better, that we have to leave it better than what we, we came in as. And, and knowledge like this helps us do that. Thanks, Jeff. And um, certainly I say, uh, growing up in Connecticut, right, I thought that in an hour, I should be able to get anywhere in the state, almost an hour's drive. And then you move to places like, you know, North Carolina, where I am now, or Pennsylvania. Previously, you realize like having access can can mean different things when you are, when your state is large, when there are huge rural areas, when, um, you know, an hour doesn't get you anywhere. Um, like, you know, it takes me five hours to drive to the other side of the state and not even the tip of it um, in North Carolina. So I think um, the more I report in different places, I also learn that the barriers um, to treatment look different in different parts of the country. Yeah, I think I, my my exposure of the world was different in my early 20s when I drove across Route 80 in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and and I just saw a different you know, aspect of what, uh, because like you, you know, growing up in Connecticut, I could get to Boston or New York in a couple of hours, Philly in four. Um, so it, I, I appreciate the fact that it provides, you know, a, a picture into something that many people not be aware of, or aren't aware of and, and help them see that. So thank you. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Anari Patani of Kaiser Health News for joining us today and also to Kapil Nair for his insight and partnership. Thanks again to Cafe Real Coffee Community for their financial support in making this podcast possible. We certainly welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor, and we can be reached at info at CT Cert Board for more information. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email me directly at jquamme at ctcertboard.org. And we appreciate everyone who is listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Everybody.